How's everybody doing? Glad to hear it. Good to be here with y'all. Uh, I'm still having a little hangover is not the right word. That's the right word. I had one of those one time in my life, and that ended it. Anyway, uh, the effects of last night, you know, y'all and the little hoedown in the country. My favorite part, I got to see my little grandson dancing, the line dancing. He was amazing. He should be a profession, just kidding. He was okay. Uh, if you have your Bibles, that's what we're here for. Please turn with, with me to Daniel chapter 11. Let me ask you a question. When you hear the word history, what do you think of? American history. That's very ethnocentric or nationalistic. I like that. Maybe you think of a seemingly endless list of events that took place in the past. Maybe you think of something dull, boring information that isn't relevant today. Maybe you think of that high school class where your teacher made you study all those dates and wars and kingdoms and governments and people that are all dead now. The other day I was talking to one of my neighbors uh, who's from India. He mentioned that India's history goes back over 10,000 years. And I commented how grateful I live in such a young country with such much less history to remember. There are many opinions about history. Uh, Henry Ford said... History is more or less bunk. Ford believed that a preoccupation with history gets in the way of living life here and now. That history was irrelevant and uh, had nothing really to teach us. While Winston Churchill said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Churchill believed that a correct understanding of history would help us to avoid the mistakes of the past. He thought that history was relevant with many lessons to teach us. And that's the view of history we find taught in Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. In Deuteronomy, Moses wrote, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you your elders, and they will tell you. Some value to talking to the old people, right? God's Word places value on remembering what's taken place in the past, remembering history. Paul wrote uh, in Romans, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Paul's talking about what is written in the Old Testament Scriptures, a God-inspired history of His people. And he places great value on looking back at these former days, receiving instruction, encouragement, hope. It shouldn't surprise us that God's Word values history, since over half, about 60%, of the Word of God is made up of historical narrative, recording what took place in the days of old, in former days, the past. Now, why am I taking time uh, to promote the importance of history? Not because it was my favorite subject in high school. Uh, because our passage today is basically a very detailed historical account. It's actually prophetic history. History written in advance. More on that shortly. In Daniel chapter 11, 
we'll be presented with what may seem like a confusing parade of people, political intrigue, kingdoms in conflict, wars and rumors of wars. At time, it may seem dull and irrelevant. And the question will come, is there something that we can learn from this history, something that's relevant for living our lives today in the here and now? And I believe there is, as is true in all of God's Word. And so I'd ask you to give history a chance today, especially the prophetic history that's inspired by the Holy Spirit and recorded in the Word of God. Like those high school history classes, it may be difficult to concentrate on all the details, but if we can understand the big picture of what God is saying through this historical prophetic vision given to Daniel in chapter 11, I believe we can find great value for our lives today. So are you ready for some history? Hold on a second, because before we get to the historical prophetic vision of chapter 11, we need to review what we looked at last week. If you remember, Daniel chapter 10, which we began last week, all the way to the end of the book, chapter 12, focuses on a vision given to Daniel in the third year of King Cyrus. That would be 539 B.C., the first date. You guys got that? There will be a pop quiz after the message on the history. This was, the, uh, this was a time, if you remember, when the Jews were faced with great opposition from their enemies all around them. In the first year of King Cyrus, so years prior, as per his decree, many Jews returned from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. Their task was to rebuild the temple and reestablish their lives in the promised land. But because of opposition, the rebuilding work had stopped, and the people were just trying to survive. The joy and the hope that they had experienced when they first returned to the land, to Jerusalem, had transformed into discouragement and despair. And in response to these difficulties, Daniel, chapter 10, tells us that Daniel himself, to identify with his people, set apart three weeks at the beginning of the third year of King Cyrus to mourn and fast and to pray. And at the end of those three weeks, he encountered a messenger sent by God. This messenger was a glorious, holy, heavenly being, either an angel or we talked about could be the pre-incarnate Christ. And he explained to Daniel that he was delayed in coming by the prince of the kingdom of Persia, a spiritual being, a demonic, satanic force who opposes the people of God and the purposes of God and was in some way related to the Persian Empire, probably had some authority over that area. In verse 13 of chapter 10, the messenger says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief prince, came to help me. From this we learn that just as there are conflicts on earth, there are also related conflicts in the heavenly realm. Difficult sometimes to grasp. What does that mean? How does that go? But we're given that information. So as we read the history of the earthly conflicts recorded in Daniel 11, remember that these conflicts, wars, are also being fought in the heavenlies. Now once the archangel Michael came to the rescue, the messenger then, in answer to Daniel's prayer, comes to Daniel. And in verse 14, he states his purpose in coming. To make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, 
for the vision is for the days yet to come. So this historical prophetic vision of chapter 11, which we will look at, is specifically related to the future of Daniel's people, the Jews, and came in direct response to Daniel's prayers and fasting for his people. Therefore, we should expect uh, the vision to contain a message that would speak to Daniel, and I believe to other discouraged believers. Daniel's, uh, along with his people in the land, he's feeling some discouragement about the enemies that are uh, uh, oppressing in upon them. So if your Christian life is filled with continual victory, if you are effortlessly, effort, if you can say effortlessly, and you're growing in your knowledge of God in an effortless, effortless <laughs> in that way, and if you're easily overcoming the sin in your life, uh, then you can probably skip this chapter. However, if you know what it means to struggle and fall, to fail when you attempt to do what God has told you to do, if you sometimes find yourself wondering, uh, why should I bother to try again? If you ever wonder, where, where's God in my life? Or how to make sense of the disconnect between the glorious promises of a, a new and triumphant experience of blessing on the one hand, and the trials and difficulties and discouragement of your daily life on the other, then Daniel 11 has a word for you today. And that word comes in the form of a prophetic vision given to Daniel. He sees what's to come for his people. But for us, much, if not all, of this prophetic vision is history. We can look back and see how the vision given to Daniel was fulfilled in the history of Israel. For as I've said before, biblical prophecy is history written in advance. So Daniel 11, through a prophetic vision, covers several hundred years of Israel's history. And this history written in advance pro provides a, an example, uh, principles of how God works in this world, and therefore helps us to see how He may work in our, our world and in our very lives. Now for time's sake, and because we might have difficulty taking in all this history at once, I've broken the message into two parts. The first part will focus on chapter 11, not verse 1 as the thing said, but in your notes, verse 2, we covered verse 1 last week, verse 2 to 20, and at verse 20 there's a, sort of this natural break, we'll talk about that when we get to it, and the second part of chapter 11, verse 21 to chapter 12, verse 3, so that's next week. This week is chapter 11, verses 2 through 20. Okay, so without any further ado, let's turn to the unpacking of Daniel's historical vision. It begins with a reminder or with a similar thing, similar information to what we saw in chapter 8. Remember Daniel's vision in chapter 8 of the ram and the goat, who were clearly identified as the Medo-Persian Empire, the ram, and the Greek Empire, the goat. Well, here we are again, same kingdoms to begin with, without the animal references. And just so you know, there, there'll be some repeated themes from chapter 8 and other things we've seen, things that we've covered in previous chapters. Apparently, God thinks that sometimes uh, we need to hear things more than once, probably lots of times. Beginning in verse 2, the glorious holy messenger from chapter 10, remember that guy, 
says, and now I will show you the truth. That's his, his opening words. What he will show is about the future. But to God, what will take place in the future is just as true as what has already taken place in the past. To God, the future is already history. The messenger continues, Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall, shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who, will, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Remember, Daniel is receiving the vision in the third year of King Cyrus, 536 B.C., right after the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire. So after Cyrus, who was the present Persian ruler, so Cyrus was the overall ruler, Just he's not mentioned here, but Darius was sort of the ruler in Babylon that Cyrus had put in place. After Cyrus, three more kings would arise in Persia, and then a fourth who would be richer and more powerful than the others and he would enter into a conflict with Greece. The fourth king is generally thought to be Xerxes I. He reigned from 586 B.C. to 465 B.C. and was the husband of Esther. So you can read that book. So this, this is taking place, Esther takes place in this, after Daniel, in the midst of this prophecy. And if you know anything about Esther, the Jews aren't doing too well in Esther either, right? There's potential genocide that Esther, for such a time as this, is there to intervene on behalf of God's people. So I'm going to mention just, just another thing for those that aren't history buffs and don't, don't really get this maybe. Uh, there are a number of a B.C., before Christ. This all takes place B.C., before Christ dates. And don't forget, when we speak of dates that are B.C., as the numbers get lower, you're moving closer, moving, our numbers get higher, so there's that zero point, and at BC they move lower as time progresses, okay? So for example, 400 BC is 100 years after 500 BC. That make sense? Okay. So under Xerxes, the Persian Empire reaches its pinnacle of power. So this is just history here that corresponds to the, Daniel's vision. However, Xerxes also chose to invade Greece and then was defeated at the Battle of Salmias. This began the conflict, the war, that would ultimately lead to the downfall of the Persian Empire, the, the, the ram with the two horns, you remember, would fall because the goat that flew in. This is chapter 8, but here it just says, and to the rising of a mighty king who would rule with great dominion, namely, chapter 8, anybody remember history, or history, your history class, who conquered the Persian Empire, Greece, Alexander the Great, okay, good. You do know there was a test, so you better be taking notes. Now, if you remember from history, again, chapter 8, Alex, I call him Alex, he died in 323 B.C., shortly, I mean, age 32, 33, he was a young guy. Shortly after establishing this empire that stretched through most of the known world, this empire was then divided among his four generals, none of whom were related to him, 
exactly as prophesied in Daniel 11, verses 4 and 5. As soon as he, Alexander, has arisen, the kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, not to those related to him, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. Okay. The two strongest of these four kingdoms that emerged out of Alexander's empire were the uh, Ptolemaic Empire based in Egypt in the south and the Seleucid Empire based in Syria and Babylon in the north. Here's a map that shows the location of both of these empires. You see that? The green, that's the Seleucid. It's really a, a lot. A lot of desert actually there too. And then the the Egypt, the Ptolemaic, where Egypt is in the south. And if you notice in the upper right-hand corner, wait, you moved to the, you moved to the uh, one with the arrow. Get the arrow off. Okay. I have to introduce the arrow. Come on. If you notice in the upper right-hand corner, can you guys read that? Upper left-hand corner, sorry. Can you read that? Territory repeatedly contested by the Seleucid and Ptolemaic rulers. It's difficult to see that color, and that, they don't do very well with the colors there. So let me point it out clearly with a red arrow. Now, okay. <laughs> do you see that arrow? Okay. Where is it pointing to? Israel, Judah, even Jerusalem, what would become known as Palestine. So you can call it whatever you want. And according to the ESV Study Bible, where I got the map, the two most powerful successors of Alexander, Ptolemy and Seleucus, continued to expand their domains into territory claimed by, other by the other generals of Alexander, and they repeatedly clashed with each other over land along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, which is Israel. Geography, too. Here we got history and geography including what it would be later called the land of Palestine, what was in the past called Israel, and today is Israel again. So that's the deal. So from an Israeli perspective, which is the main perspective of the Old Testament, the conflicts of these two empires, the kings of the south, the Ptolemies, and the kings of the north, the Seleucids, were the most significant events in world history in the second and third uh, centuries B.C., and therefore, these events, these conflicts, are at the heart of this chapter. This is what uh, uh, the messenger is revealing to Daniel. What follows is a vision of, the fu of future conflicts that would occur between the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids in the north. Now, some of the conflict uh, we'll see today involves Israel, but the major impact on Daniel's people will come at the end of the vision, which we'll look at next week. So, prepared for that. In many ways, the first part of the vision is a preparation for the second, so that anyone living at any time in the first part of the vision could read what Daniel had seen and determine, not by date, but events, where in history they were. They could approximate about how long until this second part, devastating part, the second part that we'll see next week, will come. 
Because this vision, prophecy, uh, this vision, this prophecy is extremely detailed and precise. Beginning in verse 6, we read, After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. Okay, so around 250 B.C., Ptolemy II, the king of the south, attempted to, this is, again, this is history, uh, attempted to make peace with Antiochus II, the king of the north, by sending his daughter, Berenice, to marry him, uh, to marry Antiochus. So Ptolemy II sends daughter Bernice north to marry Antiochus. The plan was that Antiochus would divorce his first wife, Laodice, and disinherit her son, making the first uh, son of Bernice heir to the throne, thus uniting the northern and southern empires. Verse 6 continues, But she, the daughter, Berenice, shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he, the king of the north, Antiochus, and his arm, Antiochus's son, shall not endure, but she, Berenice, shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. Berenice's father, the king of the south, Ptolemy II. History records that Antiochus's first wife, Laodice, discovered the plot. Berenice is coming up, and she had Antiochus, Berenice, and their youngest son poisoned. And in the same year, Berenice's father, king of the south, Ptolemy II, died in Egypt. And then in verses 7 and 8 we read, And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in her place, in his place, the king of the south, Ptolemy II. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry, out to Egypt their, carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. So after, again, history, after Berenice's father died, her brother, they weren't very creative here, Ptolemy III, a branch from her roots succeeded him on the throne. Ptolemy III then invaded the Seleucid kingdom and conquered its capital, Antioch. He then re retreated to the south, refraining from attacking the king of the north. Everybody got that? Follow that? I'm so glad. Uh, the point is, and I think we needed to do that just so you could see uh, the, the detail there. The point is that this prophetic vision given to Daniel in 536 B.C. actually and exactly took place in history. I mean, it began right there with Cyrus and then the kings, but for over 200 years later, we have Ptolemy coming in. The, this prophetic vision became history. It's the truth that the messenger promised. And this is true of the rest of this prophetic vision. I mean, that was verse 8, right? It goes, it goes along there. This is just the beginning of the fulfilled prophecy, history written in advance, that we would see if we were to go through chapter 11 verse by verse. And there would certainly be some merit in doing that. However, in our context this morning, and to make sure nobody falls asleep, uh, this sermon, it would run the risk of becoming a little bit tedious, uh, confusing, recounting all the dates and names and places. But if all that detail is of interest to you, it, 
it, it exists. I would again recommend uh, the ESV Study Bible. It does a great job of summarizing just the fulfillment found in this chapter, okay? But for our purposes today, instead of focusing on every detail, that's what we did in the verses previous, so you got a, you got a taste of that. I want us to look at the flow of events and ask what the significance of this history was for Daniel and for us. So what I'm going to do is read verses 9 through 20 so you can get a basic idea of the major themes of this vision. And then I'm going to summarize and apply what we read. So, are you ready for some reading? All right. This is a continuation of the prophetic vision we looked at in detail in verses 6 through 8, really verses 2 through 8. We left off with the king of the south, Ptolemy III, invading and defeating and retreating. Then in verse 9, Then the latter, the king of the north, shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. So this is, there's going to be a lot of war here. This is war stuff. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And, but, it shall, but it shall be given into it. Okay. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among you, your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall, there shall be no strength to stand." But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand against him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give his daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, another attempted marriage alliance, but it shall not stand or, or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute, a tax collector, for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle." I think I deserve a hand for that. No, just kidding. I mean, Sean gets a hand every day just for praying. Come on. So that's the prophetic historical vision. That's what we're looking at. And if you were to plot it out historically, you would see that going back to verse 5, where we started, all the way to verse 20, the focus of the vision is on the conflict between the kingdoms of the north, the, the map we saw, the Seleucids and the south, the Ptolemies. 
It covers the time frame from the establishment of these two empires after the death of Alexander in 322 BC down to the assassination of Seleucus V in 175 BC. Okay? Anyone want to guess who killed Seleucus IV? Did I say fifth? It's fourth. Seleucus IV. Daniel 11.20 tells us. It's right there. Who killed him? He was not killed in anger or in battle. This is history again. But he was poisoned by his own tax collector. Hilodorus, that was his name, the tax collector. So that's uh, the part of Daniel's prophetic vision right there. I mean, that's just one little final detail. And that's the part of uh, Daniel's prophetic vision that we're going to cover today. And what this vision highlights, besides its detailed, accurate uh, portrayal of history, is a seemingly endless parade of great conflicts, wars, political intrigue, which never reach a conclusion, right? The balance of power goes back and forth between these two superpowers, but for all their effort, for all their vast expenditures of wealth and lives, neither one of these empires is able to conquer the other. In fact, if you were to have a theme song for this, it would be war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Okay. Nor are they, they're not able to live in peace with one another, and their best efforts to unify through politically motivated marriage and other strategies are unsuccessful. And what I find interesting is that this is certainly not unique in human history. On one level, history is a continual story of wars, conflicts, betrayal. As one human ruler and empire after another seeks to gain power by cunning or by force, by military might, at times there are gains, conquer the world, and at other times there are losses. But in the end, their effort to attain more and more land and power and wealth accomplishes precisely nothing. The balance of power in earthly po politics may shift, but it never comes to a permanent rest. So on the one hand, Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world's pursuit of power, but never finding enough. What do power and politics gain? The world wars and conflicts, uh, all this, as the writer of Ecclesiastics noted, is vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And don't we see similar things happen throughout history? Even now, right? Not too long ago, there was a mighty Soviet Union, but it became bloated, overextended, couldn't continue this massive empire, and it fell. Not totally, but it lost much of its power. But it, at least some of it, never lost its desire to be a great and mighty empire. And so it seeks to expand with its latest efforts of invading the Ukraine, where it's run into a brick wall there of sorts. My point is, what Daniel saw in his vision History in advance related to the Ptolemies and Seleucids is just one example of the continual rise and fall of empires throughout all history. And there's one other thing we should note about this uh, prophetic vision, history written in advance. It had ramifications, as we pointed out in the map, for the people of God. 
Remember, that's why Daniel, that's why it's in the book. If, if there was nothing to do, you know, we're not, we're not hearing the wars that were taking place in other places in the world. This is the, this is the place, because this is the place where God's people are. That's why Daniel got the vision in the first place. This will become even clearer next week in the second part of the vision, but even in the first, Israel could not just watch safely on the sidelines. Some of the Jews were caught up in the conflict directly, seeking to take one side or another, but without success. Verse 14, if you remember, in those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people, Daniel's people, shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. So, I don't know if it's Daniel's vision, I'm not quite 100%, but they're trying to fulfill some kind of vision uh, through violence, through joining one side against the other. Others were indirectly affected as the forces of one side or the other swept through Israel, the glorious land. Verse 16, But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. So, things are happening uh, as they come, as uh, the, the kingdom in the north, south, do battle. So these great seemingly unending conflicts between the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south impacts the glorious land, the people of God. And that's the first part of Daniel's vision of history. Now, next week, we'll pick up in verse 21, where the focus goes from the two warring empires to one man, a contemptible person, as verse 21 calls him. And there, the impact on Israel will increase exponentially. So we've read through, we've unpacked a lot of Daniel's prophetic historical vision, and you still might be wondering, uh, why? What's the point? What's the purpose of this for Daniel and for us? So we turn to our second point, the purpose of Daniel's historical vision. Why did Daniel need to hear about this history uh, in his situation? Remember, the vision is given, third year of Cyrus, and we've seen so far that it covers the historical period, really from Cyrus all the way to 175 B.C. so far. So again, what's the purpose? We've already mentioned one purpose, that those living in in the midst of this vision In the midst of this history, I assume Daniel wrote it down pretty soon after it happened. It was available for his people. So they could see where they were and prepare for what was to come. In many ways, especially uh, the second part of the vision serves as a warning to Israel, as you'll see next week. But along with that, it seems that this prophetic vision was meant to put the difficulties of the, that the Jews were facing in 536 B.C. into perspective. Remember, many of them had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city, but they were facing great opposition. They were being opposed from the people that were in the land, surrounding the land. If you want more details on that, read the book of Esther, not Esther, Ezra, sorry, And what this vision shows is that there was nothing unique about the trials and tribulations that they were facing in 536 B.C. 
The difficulties that delayed the building work on the temple in Jerusalem and the opposition from powerful enemies, both natural and supernatural, which we saw last week, were not unique to them, but instead are an ongoing feature in this life, life in this fallen world. Their experience should therefore not surprise them as if something unexpected and out of control were happening to them. This reminds me of what Peter said to the early Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This statement was true in Daniel's day, in Peter's day, and it's true in our day. Trials, difficulties, wars, rumors of wars should not surprise or terrify the people of God. They're part and parcel of living in a fallen world. Also, the fact that Daniel received this historical vision reminds us again of God's sovereignty over all things. This is, again, history in advance. God does not just look into the future, but He controls history. He writes the book of truth. And when it's made into a movie, when it becomes real life, He produces it and directs it. As some have rightly said, history is his story. God was in control of the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south. And that implies that his people should not seek to take matters into their own hands. As if by uh, revolting against the authorities, they could bring about the establishment of God's kingdom more swiftly. That's what they're trying to do in verse 14. Remember? And the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. So they're trying to get in on it. When in fact, patient, endurance, prayer, fasting, as Daniel modeled, would continue to be the order of the day until God intervened and set up his own kingdom. So in summary, the purpose of this vision for Daniel was to make him and others who would read this, this book, scrolls, aware of God's sovereign control over all of history. Oh, God knew this was coming. Should be a, a, pretty, a pretty good reaction as, as they face those things. And to give Daniel and us comfort in the midst of our own trials and difficulties. Knowing that we're not unique. This is part of life. God knows and He will work all things together for good for those who trust in Him. Even and especially through Times of difficulty. Okay. So now as we conclude, let me just expand on that by giving the practical value for us of Daniel's historical vision. You've had a little bit. Let me, let me just give a little bit more. There's a practical and important lesson for us to learn from this prophetic historical vision. And that is, like the kingdoms of the north and the south in Daniel's vision, the kingdoms of this world, our world, can seem to have all the power. Kingdoms, superpowers, like the United States, China, Russia, have great power in this world. In fact, every worldly kingdom has a certain degree of power over the lives of their citizens. And that power, if turned against the people of God, like it will be for the Jews in the second part of this vision, and the church, it can seem overwhelming. The power, that power can easily ca cause Christians to retreat into a state of depressed 
submission. Oh, woe is me. I better be careful what I say, what I post, what I stand for. I don't want to get on the government's radar. It may lead to persecution. I better just remain silent. Or maybe, especially in a democratic republic like the United States, you think the power of the state can be used to our advantage to do God's work, to fulfill the vision. Some Christians seem to believe that they can expedite or delay uh, the coming of God's kingdom by achieving certain political goals. By voting the right people into office, we can bring about a just society. Good luck with that. Well, let me, let me be clear, just so you know, I'm not anti-voting. We are certainly responsible to vote for the people and propositions we believe reflect the values of God recorded in His Word, okay? November 8th, it's coming. Vote. Vote with God's Word as your uh, guide. But at the end of the day, the kingdoms of this world, our elected officials, can neither destroy God's work or establish it. We need to be really clear about that. They're merely tools in the hand of a sovereign God who's able to declare the end from the beginning because He alone ultimately controls the affairs of men and nations. The truth is, this truth is of great practical value in each of our lives. We all experience times when we feel caught up in a, in a larger story, a larger conflict that's completely out of our control. Just like the Jews were caught up between the, the north and the south. Perhaps our job is threatened by our company's new policy of replacing people with computers. You know, I'd love to go into McDonald's now and order from that little kiosk thing, but that can't be good for the employees, right? How many, how many people were laid off because of the kiosks? And that's happening in a lot of places. And it's out of the employee's control. They've got to be feeling like, uh, what's going on? Or perhaps uh, political decisions that are beyond our power to influence, like a nation or worldwide shutdown. Anybody ever thought that would happen? Maybe that threatens our freedom and our lifestyle, our businesses even. Or maybe our health or the health of someone we love is threatened by a disease against which we have no ability to guard. We live in a great big world and we are ever so small. In such times of uncertainty, we need to cling firmly to the knowledge that all world events, from the greatest to the least, are not only known ahead of time to God, but are under His sovereign power to control. And get this, if, uh, if you haven't got anything yet, get this, even those actions that are initiated by godless men and women in pursuit of their own wicked purposes and power will ultimately achieve the Lord's holy purpose. So as you fret about, oh my God, God, that person got elected, that person is initiating that policy, know this, even those actions that are initiated by godless men and women in pursuit of their own wicked purposes and power will ultimately achieve the Lord's holy purposes. How do I know that? 
because the apostles declared it in Acts chapter 4. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you get that? The greatest act of evil in all of human history, the crucifixion of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was done by the rulers, the wicked kings of the earth. But what they meant for evil, God used, God meant for good, He used for the greatest good in all human history. The death of Christ on the cross was a scandalous event performed out of jealousy, fear, a desire to retain power, but God in His sovereign power control used the wickedness of men to accomplish His purpose of salvation for all who would trust in Christ. And in the same way, when we face the trials, the difficulties, the suffering in this life at the hands of wicked men and governments, we must cling to the truth that God is at work for our good and for His glory. We must trust not in our governments, not in our political parties, not in our politicians, and certainly not in ourselves. We must trust in God alone. For as the prophet Isaiah records, and we close with these words, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. Is there any other God who chooses, appoints, and redeems His people? Who, has, uh, ha who was there at the first and will be there at the last? Who declares the future as history? Who writes history in advance? Who reveals Himself through His Word? Who is the rock that will not be broken? And the answer comes, I, know of, I don't know of any. For there is no one like our God. And he declares, the one who declares and controls the beginning from the end calls upon us to trust in him. Will you today, no matter what difficult situation you find yourself in, no matter what the future seems to look like, will you put your trust in the Lord, your Redeemer? Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray for myself. I pray for each person here that we would, that we would see who you are as revealed in your word, holy and glorious and sovereign, that we would see that you work for the best of your people, and Lord, we would trust in you. I pray that, that uh, this time, that this word would lift us up, would give us hope, not in the things of this world, not in this upcoming election even, but in you, knowing that you're sovereign and that you're in control. 
Lord, thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.